0: we're going to see here in this text of Acts, exactly that, the, the fellowship. We're going to see a meal between the church members, the partaking of the Lord's Supper, who were those who were partaking of the Lord's Supper. And as we were introducing uh, gloriously a new member today, uh, to see the commitment to the local church, and the serious commitment to a local church, something that's lacking lacking in our days. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Think about so many people who profess to be Christians. They're spending today, this morning, the Lord's Day at home. They're at home, probably listening to their favorite preacher, their favorite teacher, listening to a podcast, far away from the church. And and many of these people, they, they, honestly, they are fighting for Political righteousness. They are warriors in in defending righteous cause in the political sphere. Uh, Some of these women, they are serving with pregnancy crisis centers. Some of these families, they homeschool. they, They send their kids to Christian school. But they are never able and willing to submit their lives to the local church. That's very sad. It's heartbreaking. John Muther, in one article, he says, A child without a family is an orphan to be pitied. A man without a country is a refugee to be welcomed. A Christian without a church is, well, a typical American evangelical. He goes on to say, while most Americans believe in God, fewer than half are members or regular attendees of any church. And those, who, and those that attend do so with increasingly increasingly tenuous commitment, switching churches like brands of laundry detergent. A recent Gallup, Gallup poll revealed that a majority of church Americans believe that they should arrive at their religious beliefs independent of any Church, And that's the type of mentality that has been permeating so much of Christianity in America. This independence. I don't need the church. I don't need you. I don't need your commitment. I don't need to commit myself to you. And that's utterly and entirely contrary to the teachings of the scriptures. There is actually... No Christianity apart from the church. The church is, if you think about it, the church is the backbone of the Christian life. Where it hangs all the bones and muscles of your body. The only way for you to live and walk and exercise is spiritually by fulfilling all the commands that the Lord gives us. And all these commands are given in the context of the local church. And the Lord Jesus not only requires Christians to be part of a church, but He also requires certain key criteria for the church to be a a healthy church, a church that bears His name. So there is a command, there is a, a requirement for Christians to be in a church, but not in any church, but in churches that are following God's pattern. And when you come to Acts chapter 2 here, verses 41 through 47, you have basic Christianity. That's the title of the message this morning. Basic Christianity. And we need to go to the basics. So many people want the deep and the, and the profound things. And they're listening to preachers on the radio. And uh, radio, not so much, but podcasts and YouTube. And they don't have the basics of Christianity that is... You need to be part of a church. You need to be baptized if you're a Christian. And that's all we see here in Acts chapter 2. What we have here is the DNA of the church. What God is placing for all the churches. And you come to Acts. And Acts is just following after the Gospels. And if you think about the book of Luke and the book of Acts is the sequel. It's coming Luke wrote these two books together. And who is the main the main hero in the gospel of Luke? Who? Jesus Christ. Amen? The, the gospel is about Jesus Christ. So the main hero, the main character in the gospel of Luke is Jesus Christ. But it's interesting how people label the book of Acts as the Acts of what? The apostles. No, 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 no. A better title is the Acts of the Reason Jesus, the Reason Lord Jesus Christ. Because Luke continues what he started, and that is to show Jesus Christ in all his glory, now not in, on earth, but on high in his heavenly temple through his Holy Spirit. Amen? So it's the reason, uh, the Acts of the Reason Christ through his Spirit. And the Spirit is the great promise of the New covenant. The the old covenant people were longing for the coming of the Holy Spirit. That was the promise. So that's all we have in chapters 1 and 2 of Acts, is this preparation and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that the Spirit will come, the new covenant will be inaugurated. So they're longing and waiting chapter 1. Chapter 2 comes and you have the arrival of the Spirit. So that's what we have in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. And that is the inauguration, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, fulfilling the promise of the prophets. And then verses 14, you can see in your Bibles, verses 14 through 40, you have this beautiful sermon from Peter. And Peter is preaching to the crowds that first they were accusing Christians of being drunk and, and, and being crazy. And Peter stood up in that crowd, vast crowd of people, and he proclaims the gospel. He proclaims Christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures. He calls them to repent. He calls them to believe. So that's where we are as we come to verse 41. Okay. So as you, you step into the... imagine you're coming now to that day of Pentecost... Peter is preaching. A massive crowd. Here we, we're going to hear that 3,000 people were added to the church, believed. So it's a massive crowd of people. Peter is standing there and he's preaching, proclaiming the goodness of God. The glory of Christ. And we hear, look at verse 41. Verse 41. So those who receive his word were baptized And and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Who are those who received the word? Those are the Jews who had come to the day of Pentecost. They had come to Jerusalem and they were there. Probably they were there since the Passover and they remain in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. That massive celebration. And they're all there. And we hear that those who receive his word, to receive the word is the same as to call upon, you can just look through Acts. To receive the word is the same as to have faith, is the same as to repent, is the same as to call upon the name of the Lord. Those are all different uh, expressions for the same thing, to be saved. How are you saved? You receive the word, you embrace the word, you have faith, you say, Amen. Then you repent of your sins because the message confronts us. Then you are baptized. So all these things are part of salvation, the pact of salvation. So you see that the church always begins, the church always begins with the Word of God. So the, the, what's taking place here is the fruit of the Spirit empowering, preacher, empowering Peter to preach the Word. And as the Word is being proclaimed, people are being saved. And, on, and on. notice that there is no... Sound of thunder and and, and, uh, tongues with fire. It's only one man preaching. And 3,000 people are saved. That's important. There's no miraculous signs right here. It's just the man of God proclaiming the word of God in the spirit of God's power. And 3,000 people are saved. And a lot of times we think we need to have all sorts of things to attract people. And for people to be saved. And that's what we see Taking place here. So it says, so those who received his word, they were baptized. So who were baptized? Believers, yes, those who received the word. Those who received the word are baptized. And that's why we don't baptize infants in this church. We don't baptize little babies. Because it's for people who believed, received the word, and they were baptized. Water baptism is the public declaration of the internal realization of one's union with Christ. One scholar says, The immersion of Jews of Jerusalem in the name of Jesus the Messiah was not a private or secret ceremony, but a public demonstration of repentance and public confession of faith in Jesus. The baptism of hundreds of people in the presence of one of the apostles who assisted with the act of immersion in one of the large immersion pools near the Temple Mount could not have been kept a private affair. And the Christian life is not a private affair. Amen? That's the problem with so much that we see today creeping in the church is that thing that your privacy, your private, Christianity is something private. I can just. Be my own, with my own thing, my favorite preacher, at the favorite time of the day. No, it's a public affair. That's all we see taking place here. The word baptized or baptized, baptizo, does not mean to sprinkle. That's why we don't sprinkle. The word baptizo literally means to immerse. Sometimes people say, oh, that same word was used for washing dishes. How do you wash dishes in those areas? I have been to some very poor places in Africa and the lack of water. And let me tell you, they do not sprinkle water on the dishes. They immerse. They have one bucket full of filthy water and they just leave the dishes there. And then when it's your turn, they just get the dish, kind of clean up a little bit. But I was immersed in the water. Baptizo, to baptize means to immerse. That's why it's a contradiction to say, I'm going to baptize you and then you sprinkle the person. It's like, you're saying that you're immersing the person and then you're... Why immersion? Because there is a picture of dying, of being buried with Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. To be immersed. Uh, there were different pools in Jerusalem that allowed to this large group of people to be immersed. You remember, all those people traveling, coming to Jerusalem, and there were a lot of rituals where they had to be cleansed. So they would go through pools and waters to be ritually clean. So he had all those pools, and the Christians just used that to baptize the new believers. So we read, uh, so those who received his word were baptized. And look at that. There were added that day. That's what we call divine passive. What is the passive form of the verb? Do you perform the action or the action is performed on your behalf? The action is performed on your behalf. They were added to the church. Who added them? The Lord Jesus. Yes. In verse 47, you can see... And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The New Testament knows nothing of Christianity apart from the local church. Becoming a Christian is to become part of the body of Christ. So in the book of Acts, we see Luke saying that people were added to the church and they were added to the Lord. To be added to the Lord is to be added to the church, his body. It cannot be added to the Lord and not be added to his body. That's a contradiction. And notice that the Lord does not add His people to a seminary, to a coffee shop, to a Christian conference, to a parachurch organization. But He adds them to the church. All those things are wonderful. Coffee shop, seminary, Christian conference. Amen? It's wonderful. But the Lord does not add you to that. He adds you to the church. He died for His church. He loves the church. He's building His church. So that's all we see here uh, And if you turn with me to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. In verse 13. Says no one of the rest there joined them. That joined, the word to join there. It it speaks of a serious and even covenantal commitment. A lot of times people say, ah, there is no membership in the Bible. Church membership is not biblical. First of all. There's, Paul used the metaphor of a body with its members. How can you say that membership is not biblical? Paul talks about the members of the body. And then you also see here that the language that's used is of membership, committing yourself to a group of people. And and you see also, going back to Acts chapter 2, and that's important, that the members of the church were those who received the word, they repented, they believed, and they were baptized. Those are what the church Is supposed to be composed of. We have been seeing and hearing so much of people treating the church as the place of unbelievers, seekers. No, the church is the place of believers. The church is the place of those who embrace Christ, were baptized, and they come to the fellowship of the saints. Unbelievers are welcome to come. We love unbelievers coming. We invite unbelievers to come. But the church is not for unbelievers in the sense that we prepare the service for them. And that's what we see taking place. The preaching is getting shorter and shorter, more and more superficial. Why? Because people cannot handle. Carnal people, unsaved people, they cannot handle the preaching. So you've got to make something attractive. The music has to be attractive. Let's remove the prayers. Let's make something cool. No, the church is the place of those who receive the word. They're baptized, they're serious, they love Christ. Amen? So we welcome, we love to see unbelievers, but so they can have the taste of the heavenly places. We don't cater the service and the structure of the church to unbelievers, but to believers. So... And we see here they're being baptized. Water baptism is God's means of making the one individual part of the many children that He has. So that's what baptism is is to get the one there that's separated from the family and unite Him publicly. It's kind of a public ceremony of adoption. He's adopted now into God's family. He belongs to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. He belongs to the church. So that's the picture of baptism. To get the one that's isolate and now bring to the many children of God. And another picture of baptism is, as we were talking about, is a funeral. Baptism is, a, when you go to a baptism, water baptism, we are going to a funeral service where that person is declaring and showing that he has died with Christ. That's a part of the, the celebration, I die for my old life. I have a new life in Christ. And that's what we see in verse 42. Go with me to verse 42 now. And we see the new life of these people who were baptized. So we have in chapter 2, verse 42. And that's a summary statement about the life in the Spirit directing this church. Says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. I like what one one scholar says. What we have here is a portrait of Israel restored. What the promise of the old prophets. In the old covenant. They were speaking about the the renewal of Israel. And that's what we have right here. And you think about they were being baptized. They were declaring death to the old life. A new life with Christ. And that's exactly what we have here. This new life. The New life is marked by a commitment to a local church. Notice that these new converts, they are not just adding Christianity to their already busy lives. It's a whole new life that they have now. They're devoted now to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, to the prayers. It's a completely new life that they have. Things that they were not doing before. So Christianity is not adding Jesus to your life. It's not like you can just add Jesus. Oh, just add Jesus to your life. No. Actually, it's the completely destruction of your old life and a new and much better and, and, and glorious life that you have in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, and as we come, especially to verses 42 through 47, I'm going to just focus on, on verse 42. And as we, we've got to always be careful with narrative, how you apply and how you see narrative. Because not everything that Luke describing is something for us to imitate. Amen? So you, you, you don't want to imitate Ananias and Sapphira. But it's right there. Right? It's not because he's writing that that we all need to do the same. So you've got to always be careful with narrative to see, okay, what is the purpose of this? And, and we know that, especially verse 42, that is a pattern for the life of the church. Every church should follow this pattern because there's the blessing of the lord there and there's the repetition throughout the new testament of the same things that takes place in verse 42 and these four marks that Luke gives us it's Christ centered so think about the apostles teaching what was the heart of the apostles teaching Jesus Christ think about fellowship the only reason why they can have fellowship with one another is because of their fellowship with Christ Think about the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper. What is that? Because Christ's, Because of Christ we can partake of the Lord's Supper. The prayers, they're praying in Jesus' name. So all these activities of the church are Christ-centered, Christ-motivated. Amen? So the first one is devotion to the apostles' teaching. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But let's stop here and look at the word devotion. They devoted themselves. The first mark of a person who has been born of the Spirit is devotion to the things of the Lord. He is devoted to the things of the Lord. The word the word the verb there, proscartero, means to continue to do something with intense effort, with possible implication of despite difficulty, to devote oneself to, to keep on, to persist. It speaks of a persistent devotion despite all the difficulties. Amen, we need that. That, And that should be the mark of a Christian life. If you have been born of the Spirit, your life will be marked by devotion to the Lord Jesus. That's why I have a hard time when you look at people who have no devotion to the Lord. They have no affection to the things of Christ. And just because that person professed one day in the past, suddenly... Oh, but he's, he's a believer. He professed one day. No, it's a life marked. They were being devoted. That's how the verb in the imperfect is. And they continue being devoted to these things. And that's how our lives are. So, the first mark is devotion to the preaching of God's word. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Think about the apostles. They, they are the, the, the first leaders of the early church. They are empowered by Christ and the Holy Spirit to teach the scriptures And so these people here who received receive the word, they were baptized, they're new believers, they're being added to the church, and the first thing they do is to be devoted to the preaching of God's word. And it's the preaching of God's word that will contaminate everything else. And notice that they are not listening to the apostles teaching on the radio. They're not listening to the apostles preaching on YouTube. Where are they at? In church, in church. That's the only place that Jesus requires you to listen to the preaching. You're not required to listen to preaching at your home. You're not. Praise God for the privilege. But you're not required to listen to preaching in a different place. The only place where you are required to listen to the preaching is where? In church. So we see this taking place here. The apostles' teaching was the exposition of the Old Testament, especially here in the beginning of the New Testament, and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises and prophecies. So the mark of a Spirit-filled church is a voracious appetite for the Word of God in the assembly of God's people. Amen? Let's move to the next one. Two, not only devotion to the apostles' teaching, but devotion to fellowship. A second mark of the Spirit in the life of the church is devotion to a generous communion. Think about the extravagant love of Christ towards us will lead to an extravagant love towards one another. So, and you think, first of all, they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and as they're sitting under the teaching of God's Word, think about it. Sound teaching will inevitably lead to a Sound living. So orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Right doctrine, right living. And that's all we see taking place here. And we, we read fellowship. They, they gave themselves to fellowship. And sadly, we have a very superficial view of fellowship. For, for most people, fellowship, when you think about what is fellowship in the church. Some of us were part of churches where they have the fellowship room or the fellowship hall. And then you'd go there and they just have a cup of coffee and some pastries where you just... And that became the idea of fellowship. But fellowship, biblically, is much more than that. It's much larger and deeper than that. Dennis Johnson, he says, As the New Testament speaks of it, fellowship is deep, virile, and costly. Too often, today, it's cheap and superficial. The higher we value our personal privacy and freedom from commitments, the shallower our grasp of fellowship will be. Reduced to moments of idle chit-chat over steaming coffee before or after worship service. Hey, coffee is wonderful. <laughs> Talking is wonderful. But fellowship is much deeper than that. Amen? Amen? The word for fellowship, a well-known Greek word that we're always using, similar to agape, koinonia. Koinonia. This word is used in the New Testament for business association. So you remember that Peter, James, and John, they had the koinonia. They had a business association with the fishing boat. And when you go into a business association, that's costly. You are investing something. That's the idea behind Koinonia. It's also translated as generosity, contribution. We saw when you were studying Philippians that Paul praises the Philippians for their partnership. The same word, koinonia, in the gospel. It's always costly, the fellowship, biblical fellowship. The time of offering during the worship service is a time of koinonia. So as we were walking to the offering box, that's a time of koinonia. Why? Because we are giving, that's what's costly. The sharing of our wallets is a deep and profound demonstration of the work of Christ in our lives. We are sharing that which is precious, money, which is the fruit of our time and effort. That's part of koinonia. True fellowship is costly. We are giving that what is expensive and costly. Koinonia was used to speak of an association that's so close and sacrificial that the same word was used for the covenantal, covenantal marriage. So they would use koinonia for marriage relationship. Why? Because it's costly. It's sacrificial. And that's why it is painted here. It's not just a time where you can just speak about superficial things and, and have a superficial life. No. Fellowship in the church, according to the scriptures, is always something very costly. It's the sharing in, we are sharing in, in the triune God. We share in God's love, the Father's love, the the, the the Son's sacrifice, the Holy Spirit's power. We are sharing in, and then we share out with others all the blessings that God has given us. So, uh, sometimes I, I hear people saying, oh, they're looking for a new church because they're looking for... More fellowship. They don't have fellowship in, in the church where they're at, so they're looking for fellowship. Praise the Lord. That they're looking for fellowship, but then you ask, are they looking for ways to give more? Is that what they're looking for? Are they looking for ways to give more sacrificially, financially, of their time, of their effort? Is that what they're looking for? I don't know. Because that's what fellowship implies the giving. The giving of myself, of my time. Sacrificially. Amen? And a lot of times you see, no, these people, they're not looking for more fellowship. They're just looking for more for themselves. And no, we need to learn that fellowship in the Bible is always related to giving. Giving sacrificially, costly. And we see here in this church, we see a beautiful picture of true koinonia. The members of this church are always eager to share, to share what is costly. To share what is sacred. To share what's painful to have. The sharing of the heart. The opening of the heart. The opening of the homes. So many of you. Always eager to open your home. For the whole church to come. We have a meal today. At uh, Naster and Ruth's place. And I'm sorry. Last Sunday I I said that. I didn't know. I didn't know that. That's you. How wonderful you guys are. You, you guys had already set up everything. And I was the last one to know. <laughs> Afterwards, people are like, oh man, the email was all set up to send. We already know you're going to be having the meal. Like, oh my goodness. That's the beauty of this church. People are always eager to share, open their wallets, open their homes, open their hearts. That's true koinonia. Amen? And we are to be devoted. We are to put effort in that. That's not easy. We need to... But effort, be devoted, eager to do these things. Amen. Uh, I'm going to change the order here because I want to emphasize the breaking of the bread. Third, the, there was devotion to the prayers. It says, and they devoted themselves to the prayers. People born of God, those who belong to God, will devote themselves to corporate prayer. The God who called you out of darkness becomes so beautiful, so glorious, that you can do nothing but call upon His name in the presence of God's people. It's a beautiful thing. A spirit-empowered church is one that prioritizes congregational prayers. And the prayers here, you have the prayers, the definite article, and that would include specific times of prayer and different types of prayer with praises, thanksgiving, adoration, all sorts of things. Okay? And now we come towards the last one. The last one. They were devoted to the breaking of the bread. So a spirit-empowered church will always be marked by steadfast devotion and fidelity to the breaking of the bread. There's debate, as you read the, the, the scholars, the commentators here, there's debate whether the breaking of the bread refers to a meal, to a regular meal, or if it refers to the Lord's Supper. Here's the thing. I believe it's referring to the Lord's Supper because there is a definite article. It's not just the breaking of bread in Greek, is the breaking of the bread. Because right after that, Luke tells us that they devoted themselves to breaking bread. Now it's the article, the definite article. And we know because in Acts chapter 20, it, we, we hear that on the first day of the week, on Sunday, in Ephesus, they gather together to break the bread. To celebrate the Lord and the Lord's Supper. So I I believe that the breaking of the bread here is a reference to the Lord's Supper. Especially because the early church would partake of the Lord's Supper with what? With a meal. Remember, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with a meal. So that would be normal for them. And you know that because you go to 1 Corinthians and they were having problem with the Lord's Supper. Because during the meal, people were doing what? Being selfish, getting drunk, not sharing their food. So in the early church, it was very normal to celebrate the, the breaking of the bread with just a meal together. So, but I believe that especially here, in the, in the, he already talked about koinonia and fellowship, but now I think he's referring to another aspect of the worshiping community, and that is devotion to the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread. Uh, The Lord's Supper in itself symbolizes a meal with God. You think about the Lord's Supper. When we are partaking the Lord's Supper, we are picturing, we are proclaiming that we are now at the Lord's table. We have been welcomed to the Lord's table, into his house, and we are celebrating a meal with him. And that's so important because in in ancient times, and even today in, in the Middle East and some other parts of the world, you are only invited to someone's home when there is a deep relationship between you two. You're never invited to a table if you are not deeply involved and committed with that person. So many parts of the world still, and especially in in ancient times, to celebrate a meal was a picture of this covenant relationship between them. Celebration. We eat together together. I'm sharing my food with you. I'm sharing my table with you. I'm sharing my home with you because you're precious to me. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We we celebrate God's happy hospitality in bringing us into his table and say, hey, you're welcome to sit with me now because of my son, Jesus Christ. And you think about that. that's why one of the qualifications for eldership is to be hospitable because Peter tells the whole church is to practice hospitality. And then you understand why. Because we are to imitate God. God is hospitable. And especially the elders, they are supposed to show the congregation this beautiful aspect of God, hospitality. Just like God did with us, opening himself, inviting us into his table. And that's all we see taking place with the Lord's Supper. So the great expectation of Psalm 23 after he goes with the good shepherd through valley and mountain and affliction, is that the Lord sets a table right before his enemies. He can just feast with the Savior, with his Lord, right before his enemies. And that's what we do with the Lord's Supper. And you and think about Paul. Paul calls the Lord's Supper koinonia, because it's part of this fellowship, this costly fellowship between us, us, the church together, and God himself. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, fellowship, participation in the blood of Christ? And look at the definite article. And the bread that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, who is Jesus Christ. Amen. So, y- you see, who who are those partaking of the Lord's Supper? He in Acts two forty two. Believers, and what happened to them? They were baptized first of all, and then they were added to the church in Jerusalem. So sometimes people question. Why do you guys have this fencing where you got to tell people that they must be believers, and must be baptized, and must be part of a church? Because I believe it's clear in the Scriptures. And you think about Paul, he's telling us that when we are partaking of the bread, we are celebrating that we belong to this body. That's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at that. And the bread that we break, is it not a koinonia? A participation, fellowship in the body of Christ. So it's a contradiction for people who do not belong to church. They don't care about the church. To come here and suddenly partake of the bread. It's a contradiction. It's like you don't love the church. You are not in fellowship with the church. And suddenly you want to celebrate that you are. That, that, that doesn't make sense. So do you see why it's flowing from the scriptures, these things? So The breaking of the bread. And why breaking the bread? Why Jesus broke the bread? In order to pass to others. The only way for other people to eat of that bread was if that bread was broken. And that implies the Lord Jesus as here. I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you all sitting with me here. That's what it's implied in the breaking of the bread is the generosity. Because he could keep this bread just for himself. That's mine. Just me and the Father sitting at the table. But you know, He breaks. Here's for Todd. Here's for Ruth. Here's for Sam. Because He wants all of us sitting at His table with Him. So, let us be a church devoted to the breaking of the bread. And you see how so many Christians so easily forsake the day that we celebrate the Lord's Supper in churches. So many Christians at home, at home, not at church, not partaking, not being devoted to the celebration of the lord's Supper, and the Lord calls us being devoted to requires sacrifice, amen, requires hard work to be devoted to to the breaking of the bread, and that's the only way for us to grow spiritually. We will not grow spiritually if you are not devoted to these things, so I pray that we would continue being this church. By God's grace, we will be devoted, devoted to the teaching of the scriptures, to true fellowship, to the prayers, and to the breaking of the bread. And if you are here and you have not received Christ as those 3,000 people, if you're here and you have not received the word, the message that's Christ Jesus, you have not been baptized, honestly, today is the day. The Lord has His arms wide open, just like in the day of Pentecost. He was welcoming those who had crucified Him. And His arms are wide open today to welcome you. If you receive His word, you embrace Him by faith and run to Him. Run to Him. And you come to His table and you're welcome to Him, to to have fellowship with Him. That's the beauty of the gospel. Today's the day. Maybe tomorrow won't be the day because you're going to be dead tomorrow. Amen? So today is a gracious and merciful day that the Lord gives us. So, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper singing a hymn that I love. It's called, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. We sometimes think about awful as something, oh, it's awful. But awful, back in the day, implied what? Full of awe. Reverence. So how sweet and full of awe is the place. Look at that. With Christ within the doors. That's the most glorious place where Christ is within the doors with us. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. And then he says, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. What feast is that? The Lord's table, sitting with him. That's what Isaac Watts was thinking when he wrote this hymn. Each each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? And the answer is what? My grace and my mercy. My grace and my mercy. Amen? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great kindness towards us. Your love, your mercy. What a beautiful, what a beautiful day today, Lord. Oh, we stand in awe. We stand in awe. You are so majestic, so beautiful. Give us eyes, all of us, all of us here today, Lord. Give us eyes to see your beauty, your majesty, your royalty. You are the king of kings. You are the king of love. You're the king of mercy. Oh, Lord, help us to be a church just like we saw, devoted, devoted to you. Steadfast, faithful to that what you call us to do, Lord. So help us. And Lord, as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, prepare our hearts, Lord. Prepare our hearts to sit at your table. And enjoy this marvelous koinonia, fellowship with you. There was a time in our lives when we were feasting in sin. Feasting with Satan. Feasting in the table of darkness. And today, because of your mercy and your grace, Lord, we can feast with Christ within the doors. Sitting at your table. Enjoy the love of one another here, Lord. There was a time when we were starving, and yet now you feed us. We can sit at your table and eat from your food. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.